Hey climbers, welcome back to Climb by VSC, a weekly show about building and scaling startups in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jacob Poor, general partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week, I or a member of our VSC team will speak with a pioneer in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've all heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories of purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. As always, I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now let's climb. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Climb from VSC Ventures. This is uh, a podcast where we talk about helping uh, founders scale companies in climate technology. And we're excited today to have um, a, a great guest on, Mike Jackson of Earthshot Ventures. Um, Mike is a partner with the fund and has had a long career uh, in investing in companies in this uh, in this vertical. And so with that, I'm just going to turn it over. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. And um, really want to just jump into, so let's start a little bit on your background. So uh, I know you worked at the Wesley Group before this, but maybe just take us back, like sort of when did you get the passion to come into this space? And, you know, what were those moments, maybe even from like college up to where you are uh, to get to Earthshot? Sure. Um, yeah. So for me, it started when I was a little kid. Um, I used to donate my allowance money to Greenpeace and the Nature Conservancy. It is something that's been a part of me for as long as I can remember. Uh, I think it kind of came from my dad, who was always interested in the, the environment. And um, when I got to college, uh, sort of stumbled across clean energy as this uh, this segment of an interest in the environment that was pretty clearly going to just grow every year I was employed. I graduated uh, in the early 2000s, uh, did an undergrad and master's uh, studying clean energy. Um, and um, that kind of epiphany around clean energy has stuck with me ever since. Um, I spent a couple of years at a think tank on campus, couldn't quite figure out what to what to do with this kind of interest and passion. Uh, but then there's this kind of the mid 2000s in Silicon Valley and sort of the, the rise of kind of the first wave of clean tech investing. And it became pretty clear that, yeah, the private sector is probably where this is going to going to live. If I had been, you know, 10, 20 years earlier, I probably would have gone and gotten a Ph.D. or something. But um, uh, at that time, I uh, kind of did what any self-respecting 24 year old would do, which is start up a company. Uh, I started up a, a company with a buddy from undergrad. Uh, it was in the way too early days of the carbon offset market. Um, we were in the kind of era of TerraPass and, and the like when this was kind of just emerging into the, the, the public consciousness around carbon. Um, definitely, uh, definitely didn't time the business too well in terms of uh, that broad thought process. And, uh, and also the kind of 2008 financial crisis hit uh, and just changed people's perspective quite a bit on, on how to think about offsets. Uh, and at that time, then I got introduced to the folks who were uh, in the process of raising the first fund at the Wesley Group, uh, joined them originally as an intern, uh, got myself a full-time job a couple of months later, uh, and ended up staying there for, uh, for nine years, two full fund cycles, uh, investing both uh, in, the, in the kind of initial rise of clean tech. Um, we were investors in Tesla, we were investors in Amaris and Viewglass, kind of some of those heavier industry uh, style investments across climate. 
Uh, and then a second fund in 2012, 2013, which was much more, it was earlier stage, more software oriented, kind of in the, the sort of follow on to some, some of the um, sort of pullback in the space. Um, after being there for nine years, I went and joined a firm called Generate Capital, uh, which is a project finance investor in the space. Uh, Generate looked at a lot of the types of companies that were sort of emerging out of venture, starting to attract uh, and be interested in project finance, uh, and also worked at a group called Elemental Accelerator, uh, which is the largest accelerator in the space. Uh, and there was a CEO coach to a bunch of uh, their companies as they went through fundraises. Um, and out of that that work with Elemental, um, this idea of putting together Earthshot kind of spawned up uh, during the, the kind of very early days of the pandemic. And we spun out a fund of Elemental, uh, which is what Earthshot is, it's about a $95 million fund, invests pretty broadly across the climate ecosystem, energy, mobility, food and agriculture, industry, carbon, all those areas. Um, early stage everywhere from... Um, person with an idea. Uh, we've gone gone that early uh, in terms of uh, kind of napkin math uh, and all the way through Series B. So uh, generally flexible in terms of when we when exactly we come in. And a lot of that is the mantra of we want to work with the most interesting companies. We want to try to figure out ways to be helpful, figure out ways to uh, collaborate and partner with them and try not to be super formulaic about exactly what they need to look like, exactly what stage or round uh, they come in. So uh, yeah, so I've been, been around the block a few times uh, here in uh, in the climate ecosystem, and and really excited about uh, this this kind of next era that we find ourselves in now. Great, and then let's talk about the, sort of where you are now with Earthshot. So, um, as you've got this ninety five million dollar fund, are like in terms of like that flexibility to invest. Is there a particular like mandate from the LPs? Do you have to model that? Like, I want to do a certain amount of these younger, these earlier deals. Like, how are you thinking about the the modeling? Yeah, it changes a little bit over time. And some of it is also uh, being cognizant of what's going on in the market. Um, so, um, you know, I think right now, given the ecosystem that we find ourselves in right now, we're, we're uh, we've probably leaned earlier and earlier stage over time. I think uh, it's a it's a really interesting advantage for companies to be sort of birthed into uh, a little bit of a more questionable economic climate on, from a macro perspective. Um, companies that are now kind of coming out now that a bunch of funds have been put together over the last couple of years can kind of um, see this space sort of coming together and understanding how and where to position themselves. So we've moved a little bit earlier. Um, we have uh, we've both led and followed. We've probably led about. 25% of the rounds that we've done. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is just a, a really strong emphasis on that flexibility. Um, I think we really have tried to resist the temptation to say, um, the great companies are going to look exactly like this. We have to own this particular amount of the company. We have to have a particular role. Uh, and instead say, these companies are going to come from a variety of different flavors. They're going to come from and be funded by um, uh, experienced climate VCs. They're going to be funded by experienced tech VCs. Um, and we then have to figure out, you know, what it is they're doing, how, how we can add value. Um, and um, but, but ultimately try to be um, try to be nimble there in terms of how exactly we work together. Got it. Got it. And let, let's talk a little bit about that sort of adding value. How, where are you? Like, how do you think about sort of value add to these founders? Sure. Um, probably lives in a couple of different areas. So um, I think the first is in uh, is really tactical. Um, so between Don and myself, uh, the other GP at, at Earthshot, we have invested in probably something like about 200 companies. Uh, between the two of us, we've probably seen several thousand individual transactions occur. Um, and so just a lot of learnings come from that. 
Um, I, I spend a lot of time with companies uh, at Elemental in and around their fundraises. And so we provide a lot of support and help the companies as they go through that. That's kind of a core tactical skill set that we have. Um, we spend a lot of time with companies understanding how to run a board meeting, how to run investor updates. One of the things that would happen frequently uh, when, when coaching companies through fundraises was, all right, you just raised your first round of institutional capital. You have a board meeting to, uh, in a few weeks. Have you ever been to a board meeting before? Uh, you're going to need to run one. And what are some of the best practices that you can kind of extend across those areas? And so a lot of what we try to do is, um, is just be generally helpful in kind of sharing best practices and experiences. Uh, the second is around strategy. Um, I think one of the things that's really important across this space and a question I often ask companies uh, when they're pitching us is, what is it good to be good at in a particular market? You'll see lots of companies targeting a particular opportunity in the alternative protein space and the solar value chain and the energy storage value chain. And generally speaking, there's, there's value that tends to accrue to certain places in that value stack. Uh, some people are really good at, at reducing the cost of a pretty small amount of the overall cost, as an example. They're a 90% reduction of 2% of the cost versus a 50% reduction of 50% of the cost. And so really try to help companies position there. Um, we also help companies think through things like project finance and how that's going to play into their business over time, how they can design their company to be able to attract that type of funding. Everybody says they're going to get it. Uh, we're not going to build these projects ourselves. We're not going to be, uh, you know, we're going to do it in a capital efficient way, but there's a whole set of processes, a whole set of ways in which you scale your technology in terms of the customers you pursue that will affect whether you're actually able to attract that type of money or not. Um, and then I think the third is just in and around connections. So uh, between between Don and myself and the rest of the team, again, many hundreds of CEOs who we've who we've worked with, and uh, one of the fun parts now of investing that was very different than you know investing in 2009 2010 is you can talk to a founder and say, hey, you're you're building a product that sells to utilities. Uh, We've worked with a number of folks who've done that successfully and unsuccessfully. We can have you. You can have a conversation with those folks to just kind of understand ground truth your ideas. That wasn't possible in 2010. There was nobody who had built a company successfully selling to utilities or successfully getting beaten up by selling to utilities. And um, so it's just an, it's kind of a new wave of being able to to do that and surround people uh, with folks who've been in the ecosystem for a long time. Uh, and then at the end of the day, for us. All of those are, are different approaches, and we try to approach the companies uh, that we work with not as a hammer looking for nails where we always provide the same value, but instead try to understand what does this company need right now? Who else is around the table? What are they good at? And, and try to figure out what exactly our role might be um, so that we're able to be flexible there. We're able to provide um, you know kind of incremental value rather, re relative to other folks, and that even can evolve over time with a company. So what they need when they they're at the seed stage, it's pretty different than what they may need at a Series B. Uh, and I think it's really important as investors trying to help these companies to be aware of those differences and to be aware of when you're the right person, you kind of have the, the right expertise at the right time, and when sometimes you're not. Because uh, in a portfolio of 30 or 35 companies, it would be kind of weird if uh, we are the ideal board members for every one of these companies from seed stage through IPO. Um, you know, we, we have to be kind of mindful of how we surround uh, companies with with different skills, different networks as they grow. 
Got it. And so I'm, I'm coming in as, you know, we have our first fund. We've been angel investing for about a decade. But yeah. Yeah, one interesting thing looking at this space, first of all, it's very complex and, and diverse. But yeah. then uh, I'm, I'm just super curious, like, how do you like, how do you map your time? Like, so you've got, you know, thousands of transactions, all this information you could share with these founders. How much of the time is split up between all the things you have to do as a GP? Like, how much is sourcing? How much is... Um, selecting how much is sort of the, you know, that service layer? Yeah, that's a great question. And for me, it's evolved over, over time from, you know, our first close on the fund in May to building out our team, building a, a team of folks to kind of compliment me uh, on our team. And, um, and ultimately that, you know, for us, that has changed over time. I, I tend to say that, you know, VCs typically are doing about four main things. The first is sourcing companies, identifying what those opportunities may be. The second is choosing them, uh, the sort of general due diligence process. The third is helping those companies be successful. And then the fourth, which happens in a, a more cyclical fashion, is, is in around fundraising and interacting with your investors and, and engaging them in the overall process. Um, I think it's important for investors to figure out, um, especially, you know, smaller funds, newer funds, you can't get an A-plus on all four of those areas. Uh, you have to figure out where to prioritize your time, where to emphasize uh, where you're going to play. We spend a lot of time on sourcing. Uh, that is probably the area of, um, it's probably my primary skill set as a VC. Um, this fund has a very strong partnership with Elemental Accelerator, which is the largest accelerator in the space, attracts several hundred applications every year. Um, it gives us a, a huge influx of potential investment opportunities. We do a lot around data-driven sourcing, a lot of proactive outreach to companies. Um, so that's an area that we spend a tremendous amount of time on, because if you're not looking at the best opportunities uh, across the space, your ability to evaluate and pick um, is probably not going to be as important. I always like the phrase, uh, from, from great options come great decisions. And so when you think, in, if you can power your diligence process with incredible deal flow uh, and incredible companies, incredible founders, uh, the job of evaluating them becomes a little bit easier. The job of how you help them becomes a little bit easier. So it's the thing that feeds into a lot of other parts of, of the overall process. So for us, that has been the primary, um, it's been the primary initial focus of we've got to get that right. We've got to make sure that we're seeing the most interesting things. Um, that's then turned into a professionalization of our diligence process. How do we ask the right questions? How do we both um, go through and identify potential weaknesses, uh, but probably even more importantly, how do you identify and validate huge strengths? Uh, I think there's a school of thought amongst venture, which I subscribe to as well, that the, the, great, um, the great companies tend to not have absence of weakness. They have presence of enormous strengths. And so um, it, there's a temptation in a diligence process to go through a checklist and identify all these issues and problems, et cetera, uh, but then kind of lose, the fa lose sight of it's an incredible founder. The opportunity in market space is amazing, the traction, whatever it may be, but really try to zero in on that presence of incredible strength. Um, and then for us on, on helping, it's building out capacity. Uh, it's figuring out um, where are we going to be folks who are going to spend time in board meetings and provide you know, great guidance? Where are we going to be connecting them to a broader network? How can we build tools to support companies around hiring, around fundraising that give us a greater degree of scale? Um, 
Um, and um, so we played in, in a couple of those different areas, but um, it's tricky and it changes, uh, you know, hour to hour uh, in terms of where the focus is. Uh, and a lot of it comes from uh, as well, just building up uh, an awesome team of people to work with uh, who can zero in on uh, these different areas and become specialists and, and kind of experts in these different areas. Makes sense. And, you know, as, as this market has had a correction, um, how often do you look at those? Uh, I mean, you say it changes hour by hour, but like, do you ever feel like, um, like a chicken with your head cut off a bit on how to, how to, all the time. All the time. What, what about it? Inven- <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> venture, sure. There, there too. But, uh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just saying like, before this correction, I feel like there's so much, a lot of religion around process, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, I mean, the zero interest rate world was 12 years. You had a lot of time to build process. And we've got a combination, maybe a confluence of a correction, uh, wars that have impacted global supply chain and food um, and climate change, which is super unpredictable in terms of the, the markets that it like opens up. And then on top of that, you got the Biden's IRA. So like, I'm just curious, like how much do you allow for flexibility in all those processes you're creating and how often is it okay to keep changing them without seeming to all over the place, I guess is what I'm saying, or like, yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. So, um, it kind of comes down to like, uh, thesis around how to be successful. Um, and I think there's a couple of different ways that people can do that. So, one is around thesis around sectors. So it's the common question, you know, what sectors are you excited about, et cetera. Um, we have some of those. Uh, we spend some time. They vary amongst our team. If you ask Austin on our team, he's got an area he's particularly interested in right now. We'll meet with a company uh, and say, oh, that they've identified this interesting opportunity, but maybe this particular company isn't the most interesting. Why don't we go talk to who their competitors might be uh, and ultimately potentially find a, a new opportunity. That was how I ended up finding one of the companies I invested in uh, my time at the Wesley Group was met their competitor, loved it, wasn't excited about the company itself uh, and ended up talking to somebody else who was kind of pursuing a similar opportunity. Um, that's one area. And I think that's that focus on like thesis and sector, I think it's easier and easier as you invest later and later. So in my time at Generate, you can see these things coming for for years in advance. Uh, nothing is going to emerge next Wednesday and attract project finance on Thursday. Uh, in early stage venture, I think that's harder and harder to have those insights. I think you can occasionally do it, but if you're going to believe, hey, I'm going to think of all the great ideas, and then I'm going to go find all the founders who are working on them and give them money, you have to have a perhaps unhealthy view of your own uh, intellectual capacities. Uh, But I think there's then other areas where you can kind of build those systems and processes. So one is um, having thesis around people. So interesting people create interesting companies. How do we find and become exposed to the most interesting people out there? Um, We spend a lot of time on those efforts, trying to identify folks still in stealth mode, trying to create a magnet in terms of the the firm itself to find interesting folks. And so that's something that I think you can consistently get better at. How do you build networks that that send interesting people your way? Uh, A second is around, um, we tend to focus a lot on uh, technology trends that intersect with climate. And so less about specific opportunities, but it's about things like 
Um, computer vision. So we've made a couple of investments in computer vision companies. One is a company called Noteworthy, which uh, mounts cameras on utility trucks to, uh, to to monitor and diagnose problems across the distribution infrastructure. We've invested in a company called Aquabyte, um, which I think of as like the NFL camera in these aquaculture pens to identify um, what's going on in these pens around uh, pests, uh, the feeding of food. Um, we've uh, invested in some AI companies intersecting with climate. We've invested in uh, a couple of synthetic biology companies investing in climate. And so uh, those areas of uh, those kind of strange combinations between technologies and climate, I think, produce some pretty interesting companies. Uh, and then I think that the, the last is, is having a thesis around process, around where do interesting companies come from? What hoops do they sort of bounce off of? And how can we hang around those hoops? Oh, this, this accelerator called Elemental has produced a lot of interesting companies historically. How do we get to know those folks, track their announcements, and do that at a, at a broader scale across 50, 100 accelerators? Those types of things, I think, allow you to start to create your own luck. And then, yeah, occasionally you have a thesis on, I think, this one little opportunity in operating systems for uh, for EV charging or something like that might be, okay, you might be right and place a bet in that direction, but that's that's uh, somewhat of a minority of the overall portfolio. Got it, got it. So um, a lot of great stuff there that I want to dig into with you. So sure. let's talk about um, interesting people, right? So um, I'm trying to think through my, so we've worked with about 700 companies. I'm trying to think through the, the, the successes. Uh, some of the people have been interesting, uh, like, I mean, when I'm thinking about interesting, how do you define it? Let's, let's get into that first. Sure. It's really hard. So I, uh, I had the mind blowing experience of reading the book, uh, talent, Tyler Cohen and Daniel Gross's new book, uh, recently, which attempts to start to put some frameworks around this highly recommend to other folks in terms of, uh, just starting to think about this more systematically and, um, and starting to almost become a student of this question and this problem. Uh, just a, just an incredible uh, book. That started to kind of shift from the subjective, you can just kind of feel it into like, let's start to put some 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 structure around this. Uh, I've been fortunate for a reason I maybe don't fully understand to have just backed some absolutely amazing people. Um, some of them are very technical. Some of them are single founders. Some of them were uh, kind of uh, were, were small teams coming together. Uh, in some cases, very different skill sets, very different personality types. Um, I think some commonalities certainly come to, and some of these are cliches, but uh, one is they have an insight. They have some unique insight that often comes from some strange combination of um, skill sets, either within the founding team or within you know an individual's head. So an example of that was a company we invested in called Trove. Uh, the co-founders of Trove, one is a guy named Adam Warbach. Uh, Adam was kind of famously the president of the Sierra Club at I think age 20. Uh, the you know amazing environmental activist who then went and um, uh, ended up going to Walmart. And saying, hey, if I can green Walmart, uh, if I can make Walmart 1% greener, it is hard to imagine I could have a broader impact on the world. While at Walmart, he met a guy named Andy Rubin, uh, who was a senior executive at Walmart, who said, you know, my whole job was I've got to just give more stuff. I have to sell more stuff. People don't need more stuff in this small town. We've got to figure out how to sell them more stuff. And, and the kind of insanity of that uh, caused him to say, how do we unlock the closets and garages of the world? 
and get those products back into circulation. Uh, so this is like this very strange combination of two people that ultimately created the company called Trove, which uh, now basically powers these used marketplaces for brands. Um, so if you go to uh, Patagonia, REI, and other brands kind of used section, Trove is powering the entire back end of that. So that's like a unique insight that comes from this strange combination of folks who you never would necessarily expect would be sitting next to each other at a dinner party. Um, I think we've, I think I've seen that a number of times. The second is uh, people are just willing to kick down walls. We've got a couple of founders in our portfolio who you just know are going to do absolutely everything it takes uh, to be successful. In the early days, that is absolutely a huge advantage. They're chief evangelists. They are going to uh, ensure they hit their first couple of uh, first couple of customers. But then it's something over time you need to be mindful of uh, because that um, that I'm going to make this work no matter what mentality. I think is uh, it, it can it can present itself in in stranger ways as companies grow and mature. So something to kind of think through. Um, and then I think the third is, is uh, similarly kind of thinking about this concept of founder market fit and this concept of what is it good to be good at. And um, in some markets, it's somebody has a technical insight, some technical experience. In other cases, they're a phenomenal salesperson, and that's really what the market needs. In some cases, it's, it's hey, this market's kind of been held back by lack of product innovation. And so somebody's going to kind of step in and build an amazing new product, you know, Nest being the kind of glaring example of that across the climate space. Um, and um, so finding those sorts of fits. Um, but I wish I had a, I, you know, it's, it, it, there's a part of this as well that is you sort of know it when you see it. Um, and just kind of keep reminding yourself of that when you're when you're talking to founders. Um, there's just some uh, magnetism around them. Uh, but but I think a, a really important to avoid creating uh, a really specific box in which you think people need to fit in order to be successful. Let's talk a little bit about the funding itself. Um, so that, that was super helpful. And I think as founders looking at, you know, working with you or looking at uh, firms at their, at these different phases, um, how does the project financing play a role uh, with these companies? Obviously way bigger deal here than in non-climate um, overall, right? It's, it's a, it's another source of capital. Um, totally. and, how do you think about that for these companies? How do you help them uh, with that? Totally. Um, so it's it's kind of amazing to me to sort of look back on the history of investing in the first wave of clean tech uh, and all the investments that went into it. For myself, I didn't understand how project finance worked at all uh, until I started working at Generate. Uh, and I had the the awesome, fun, incredible experience of getting to work with uh, the three founders of Generate, Jigger, uh, Jigger Shaw is now running the DOE loan program, Scott Jacobs and Matan Friedman, and all kind of taught me about project finance from different angles. And then what I was able to do is go out to companies and, and kind of teach them how it works. And one of the pieces that I found really um, almost like heartbreaking about it was um, 
you would talk to certain founders and ask them questions about things along the lines of, you know, who are your customers? For how long will they purchase uh, what your factory or your plant will produce? Can you get it at a fixed price? Can we understand kind of the credit quality of those types of customers? And occasionally people would be like, why are you asking me these questions? This is, you know, there's a really big idea here and uh, this is very exciting. And essentially what, uh, what had happened was founders didn't really understand how project finance works and what sets of questions people would ask. Think about it like the the uh, the standard 15 slide VC deck. Everybody kind of understands that they have that context around market, competition, margins, team, etc. People tend not to have in their minds what are the key high level questions that project financiers are going to ask them. And so, for part of it for me has just been wanting to be on this uh, almost mission of being sure we teach early stage founders. What is eventually going to happen at Series C, Series D, et cetera? What sorts of questions people are going to ask? Because then people can design around it. If people understand what that future test is going to look like and how different it is from raising venture capital, when you're raising venture capital, it's all about, I can produce this enormous upside opportunity. Uh, Oh, yeah, there's lots of ways it can go wrong. (laughs) When you raise project finance, it's all about, here is how I have ironed out every conceivable risk I can think of. Now, every project is certainly not going to have that in the early phases, but over time, it is your job as the CEO almost to, uh, to remove as many points of failure, as many points of risk as you possibly can so that you can attract this non-dilutive money to help the company grow. Um, so for us, then that's something that, that allows us to uh, work with companies along their journey to help them prioritize how they might, uh, what customers they might pursue. For example, a slower moving, high credit quality customer, if you're going to raise project finance, is great. It's terrible when you're trying to raise venture capital dollars uh, where they want people to move very quickly. Uh, When you think about market opportunities, sometimes there's the temptation to go into the biggest possible market, which is maybe in a country that's much harder to get people comfortable funding infrastructure in. Might be a little easier to build that first project, say, in the United States, perhaps doesn't have the same level of upside associated with it, but it allows you to prove out, you know what you're doing, and, and the technology worked at that larger scale. Now we can bite off another piece of risk in the next uh, in the next phase of the business. Um, and so, and then lastly, it just helps us understand from an investment perspective, which sorts of companies are actually going to be able to raise project finance and which ones aren't. Uh, because everybody says they are going to try to do that and they're not going to be like those crazy folks who built the plant themselves. They're going to use project finance. Uh, but in, in many cases, they're not structurally set up to be able to do it. Uh, and so we've avoided a number of companies where um, we think the road, while not necessarily impossible, it's a lot harder. Um, and uh, I think we have kind of open eyes about um, what it's going to take for them to, to make it to that next stage and uh, try to fund the sorts of companies when we do invest in hardware that have that really exciting return profile, that have those attributes that, yeah, they're going to have good answers to the questions when they go talk to uh, to the folks at Generate and others uh, about um, raising money for the first couple of plants. Got it. And let's that's, that's super helpful. And I want to talk a little bit about some of these areas of investment for you. Um, one thing you mentioned was your first startup was way too early in carbon markets, for example. Um, now we're here, 2023, Q2. Um, what is still too early 
And what is like perfect timing right now? What kind of, what are those vertical, give us, give me some examples and maybe for our audience. So if people are building projects that are ultimately going to have the primary source of their revenue come from carbon offsets, um, what they will need back to my point on, um, on sales, who's buying it for how long at what fixed price and ideally for as much of what you produce as possible. Right now, the buyer market hasn't yet started to say, we'll buy carbon offsets from you for 20 years at this price. And part of that is they have corporate commitments that are that may be a little bit flexible. Nobody really knows what the future prices are going to be. And folks don't know whether they're, they they don't know who's the fool in the transaction to lock in carbon prices at, say, $50 a ton for 20 years. Um, that's going to need to come around for uh, project finance to be willing to really step in and fund a lot of carbon projects. Again, I think this is this is not a total mystery to folks um, in, in the carbon ecosystem, but it's not yet resolved. And I think it's an area that um, it's going to be really important to really unlock that part of the market. We haven't made uh, investments in, in much in the way of uh, companies that, that are primarily dependent on carbon offsets as their revenue stream, in part because uh, I still have some nervousness about how that's going to happen, how a, a down economic climate is going to affect people's willingness to commit. Hey, we're going to continue to pay these carbon prices and lay off 20% of our workforce. I would hate to be the CEO making that case to their shareholders. Uh, it's going to be really tricky. And I lived through that in 2008, 2009, when many of those kind of initial commitments were you know, kind of shifted to the wayside. So those are areas that I think are um we're getting there. We're getting close. But those are two really important things that need to get solved for a lot of companies to ultimately be successful and trying to do whatever we can to be to be helpful there and in, in, uh, educating customers and financiers and startups around this all sort of needs to come together on um, things that feel uh, pretty interesting right now. Um, we you know, one of the things that I love are um we look for analogies in the companies that we invest in and say, um, who's built a company, you know, squint your eyes or fuzzy your eyes. And it looks kind of like that, but this one's now doing it in climate. Um, so as I mentioned, things in computer vision, AI, um, uh, B2B SaaS companies and the like, where we're looking at it from the climate lens. You can think of it like we're looking at a house and we look at the front of the house and we say, that's a beautiful house. This is, this is wonderful. Um, if we invest with another climate investor, they're probably standing right next to us also looking at the front of the house. And similarly saying, this looks like a, a beautiful house. Um, what I like to find are companies where actually there's somebody who's looking at it from also a completely different angle. They're looking at the back of the house and saying, there's a pool here. This is awesome. Or there's no back of the house. Uh, avoid. So somebody who specializes in B2B SaaS, who specializes in marketplace-based investments and says, I don't care about climate. What I know is this, this, this marketplace has really interesting marketplace dynamics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm a little nervous about climate, uh, but I'm really glad that guy's standing in the front of the house and validating that that, that looks pretty good. And so some of the companies in our portfolio that I think uh, the, 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 the classic example of this in our portfolio was um, our, our CRM pulled up this company called Cobalt Metals, whose Series A was led by Andreessen Horowitz, Software is Eating the World, 
and breakthrough energy ventures, uh, which is very far from software is eating the world. It's, it is, we need big technical innovations to drive uh, the kind of future economy. They fund fusion companies, they fund all sorts of capital intensive businesses. And so uh, my just initial reaction was, what does that company do? Uh, I am so curious what these folks are up to um, and, you know, kind of learned it's, it's AI for identifying the precious metals of the, the future energy transition. Um, and, uh, you know, loved that kind of strange combination of investors who can look at it from different angles and say, this is a killer AI team. Whoa, what they're solving is an enormous opportunity in the climate market. And if you can find these sorts of resources from our perspective, you can raise non-dilutive funding to be able to build those things. You don't need to, to pick up a shovel yourself and uh, and dig it out. You own the resource. That's where the value tends to accrue in in, in uh, these markets. And then you can have the, the Rio Tintos of the world or whomever, the BHPs, bid against each other to, to pull it out of the ground and, um, and uh, ultimately commercialize it. And so... So I love those types of like disciplinary, uh, the multidisciplinary um, companies um, that are with that kind of complementary investor set around them. And ideally also complementary teams around them where you have uh, somebody coming from the AI industry uh, collaborating with somebody who maybe is coming from the more traditional energy sector. Oh, yeah, totally makes sense. And I think that's one of the things we do with our fund is focus on helping with the storytelling. Is this something that we think earned media could drive an outsized right. awareness for without specializing in some of the other parts of the science of the business. Yep. Um, but that's interesting. So, and then, and talk to me a little bit more about um, what you're doing with the founders now in this market. So a, like, where do you rate the economic climate right now for your portfolio companies? Are we, is it a, you know, I don't know, like sunny days, like September, for climate versus everything else, is it? Yeah, it's not 2021 anymore. Uh, so um, it's tricky. It's hard to know. Um, I think on from the kind of macro, the overall macro perspective, um, obviously there's a ton of uncertainty, a ton of uncertainty about what's going to happen with interest rates. Um, are we going to hit a recession? There's that whole category of risk. Um I think the second area that um, the, the opportunity in all of that is if we if we have peaked from an inflation perspective and interest rates come down, you're going to see all these public companies come rip roaring back from a valuation perspective. Uh, you know, a lot of tech has been damaged in the public domain from high interest rates. And as that comes down, the, you know future prospective earnings of these companies are going to all of a sudden look rosier. They're going to be more valuable. And uh, the kind of interest in tech is going to uh, explode, <laughs> explode off the page. So if that happens, that's pretty interesting. Um, within climate as a whole, I think there's this interesting dynamic that a number of funds were put together in a pretty perfect economic climate. We raised our, we did our first close in 2021. Turns out that was the best year conceived. You know, I've been doing this for a while. That was the we probably, with the benefit of hindsight, we probably accidentally kicked off our fundraise. You know, within four weeks of the ideal moment in a decade. Uh, and so, uh, a lot of folks put together funds at a similar time, which means a lot of folks are going to go back out to market at a similar time. Uh, and it's pretty likely the market's not going to be as strong as it was in 2021. Um, so that may create its own sort of choke point in the industry, which I'm pretty mindful of. With that, a lot with that then shifts back to again this point of complementary investors is companies that can raise from not just climate VCs, 
are dramatically more resilient than those who are entirely dependent on raising from climate VCs. Hmm. Um, that's always true, regardless of whether you what you think of the, the macro climate. Um, but that's a really important point. And it was something that I think tripped a lot of companies up in, say, 2011, 2012, where, you know, they were fundamentally clean tech hardware. And as generalist VCs pulled out of the space um, and climate funds failed to raise uh, follow on funds, it became pretty tricky. So um, that it causes us to kind of double down in this idea of how who are these companies kind of at the nexus of these these different trends. Um, but, uh, you know, it's 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 always tricky uh, if the market's going to take off and, and go really well over the next little while. It's going to make it easier for folks to raise these follow on climate funds. Being hesitant right now will have proven to be a really uh, unwise strategy. Um, if we're, you know, heading into a, a worse macroeconomic climate, being hesitant right now is probably pretty helpful. Uh, and maintaining some dry powder, making sure that you have um, uh, extra reserves for your portfolio companies um, and uh, maybe don't write that last check or two out of the fund and have additional uh, funds available for your existing portfolios to get through some tight spots over the next couple of years. Um, so especially as we get towards the end of our investing period, being really intentional about those trade-offs of one more deal or a little bit more buffer for our portfolio, um, try to create that zero sum and, and, you know, and debate and be very intentional about, okay, we've, we've crossed that, that line. We have perhaps a little bit less in reserve, but you know, this opportunity is so compelling. Let's do it. Yeah, totally makes sense. And in and, and your mind, like just personally thinking about it, what is, I have a, I have a line I'm, I'm thinking about when it's sort of time to turn things back up again. Of course, you can look at the public market, interest rates going down, public market stocks ripping, totally makes sense. Um, there's a cleansing happening with many of these companies now with costs, yep. right? And and sure, AI is helping in some ways, right? Where they can think about what they can automate. Also, the AI they're building, right? And is that creating yep. more revenue potential? But it seems to me the second thing would be IPOs, right? So mm-hmm. um, in anything, whether it's Stripe or something in climate, but getting the markets open again on that side, is going to be a bit more, it's going to be another milestone. Um, yeah. But are those the sort of ones you see? Are there, I mean, I, of course the IRA was huge uh, yeah. last year, uh, but are there, what are the other, are there any other marks you see that would matter? Um, yeah. I mean, I think we want to see some proven successes out of this wave of climate, right? We've gotten, uh, th- this is a pretty new uh, turn of events. I, I remember getting a, getting a beer with uh, Shale Khan now at EIP in like late 2019 and saying, are you kind of finding a lot of folks from tech seem to be really interested in climate and want to drop their jobs and start a new company? And it's like, yeah, me too. That's fascinating. And, you know, how that has played out. Um, so we're still early in in this, this kind of wave, um, but I think we want to see some big successes happen. I think what, I'm still trying to figure out what was in the water in 2019 that kind of caused this shift and this interest back to the sector. I'm stuck in it one way or the other for my whole career. I, you know, I'm passionate about it. I, I, I'm in it whether it's it's cool or not uh, at the particular time. But um, man, it really it really turned around. I think one of the reasons for that was the the explosive rise of Tesla in the in the public market and people saying, "Oh wow, that was a really big success." 
success story. You know, when they were in public, it was certainly a nice success story, but, you know, it's now one of the most valuable companies on the planet. Um, and people see the cars everywhere and they're absolutely, you know, every now uh, automaker has their own EV programs. That, that's been a big shift. Um, I think we need to start to see a couple of those. There's obviously some interesting and high-flying companies right now, but they're still private. They're still getting there. Uh, some of them may have gotten ahead of their skis a little bit in uh, you know, fundraises in 2021, 2022. So see how that kind of shakes out a little bit. But that's going to be you know, seeing some big exits, um, I think will solidify this trend. And I think there's some pretty cool companies out there who are, who are going to help us get there. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. So I'll, I'll, you can put your CNBC hat on here. What are the next three Teslas that we can look out for in the public market? They're all in our portfolio, as of course you might guess. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I continue to be um, a huge believer in what the folks at Lilac Solutions are doing. Um, they, for folks who aren't familiar with them, they're a technology that extracts lithium in a much more efficient way from uh, from subsurface uh, salt aquifers. I met them many, many years ago. They were our first call when we did a first close on the fund. Hey, are you guys raising anytime soon? Um, they're a company that breaks the supply chain for lithium if it works. Um, it is there's all this lithium around the world that exists in uh, concentrations that are too low to extract using traditional technology. Uh, they, they're typically extracted using these large evaporation ponds. Uh, you, you kind of pump this salt water out of the ground, evaporate a ton of the water in these gigantic deserts in South America, uh, try to get it concentrated enough to then be able to process, which means if you have half the uh, concentration in the brine, you need twice as large twice as many gigantic football field sized uh, uh, evaporation ponds. There aren't a lot of places in the world where you have that coincidence of high amounts of lithium and, um, and a tremendous amount of space to be able to do that. So uh, that's one I, I continue to just be incredibly excited with the progress that they've made. Uh, been able to watch them since a couple of employees um, one I'm, I'm super, uh, super excited about. Um, I think we'll see a success in the in the carbon accounting and offset market in the watersheds of the world, patch and the like. We're looking at some companies in that ecosystem right now. Um, but I think we'll see something uh, pretty cool happen there. Um, I continue to be really excited about what uh, what Cobalt's working on. Um, but then I think the other piece is uh, I have a little bit of humility that um, – one of the companies that's going to end up being really successful is probably not someone that people are talking about right now. So um, when I was at the Wesley Group uh, and we were investors in Tesla, in 2009, Tesla was not a company that people said, oh, man, nice job. Congratulations on being in that. It was all about Fisker. It was, hey, I can't believe you guys invest in this crazy electric vehicle company, you know, a sports car for $120,000. Come on. Uh, Tesla was not a kind of poster child of success, um, even as a fairly late stage public company. Uh, sorry, private company. Uh, it was the most shorted stock, I believe, in the history of the U.S. stock market uh, shortly after it went public. And um, so I think we're going to see something emerge in a way that, um, you know, it's really not on folks' radar screens. If you interviewed 10 VCs, it would not make anybody's top 10 list. Um, and um, I think that's going to be also just kind of fun and interesting to see. I love those picks. So, Mike, I think we're kind of at our time here, but just you know, last couple thoughts, um, sort of any interesting, uh, takes on the market, anything, uh, 
I'm not saying hot take, but generally like things that are maybe overhyped, things that, uh, you know, probably you want to guide a little bit on the audience and founders on that maybe is a myth to bust. The big advantage companies have starting a company right now is um, unlike in 2009, there weren't a lot of people you could talk to who'd been through it yet. You had a lot of folks kind of emerging from the tech ecosystem and investing in climate. You had a bunch of folks from the oil and gas sector coming in and starting companies. That's so different now. Um, there are people who are, who, you know, uh, I kind of grew up in that ecosystem. Abe and Josh are congruent or peers of mine, Paul and Harsh at Wireframe, the G2VP guys, Andrew Beebe, et cetera. We've all been doing this for a long time. That's really cool and exciting. Go talk to those folks. Talk to the, the folks at Generate who've been uh, investing in Ventura and now on the, on the project finance side. Um, those mentors throughout the ecosystem didn't used to exist. Uh, I think secondarily, um, there's all these folks now who learn how learn the success formula either at tech companies or at climate companies. And we see, you know, Tesla alums spinning out companies constantly, Sunrun alums spinning out companies uh, constantly. Um, go try to learn from um, the people who have been operating in this space for a long time. Uh, and if you're going to build a hardware company, you know, learn project finance before you start your company. Learn how it works. Learn whether this makes sense. Don't discover that at Series C that, oh, boy, I, I made a, an incorrect decision that's not going to allow me to get there. Um, but then I think the last point, which is kind of the, the fun piece for, for folks like myself and Andrew and, and, and Abe, and et cetera, is I'm sure we lean pretty heavily on our experience. And I think that's probably pretty, pretty helpful to us. But there's going to be some places where it leads us astray. Uh, it's, there's going to be some places where the world has changed and we're going to apply the lessons of the past um, and say, oh, yeah, we saw this before. It doesn't work. Uh, and so we're going to miss those things. And so a lot of what we try to figure out uh, at EarthShot is like, how do we get our experience bias out of out of the equation as much as we can? How do we empower our team to bring in interesting companies? Um, how do we empower a kind of network of, of CEOs to send us interesting companies so that, um, you know, the, the biases that we have around what will work or not, uh, I, I'm sure it's going to be wrong uh, a few times. And I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some really big companies that if you were to ask me about, I'd say, oh, no. No, tried that. It's not going to work. Um, and so um, I'm just excited to see uh, that kind of combination of new talent and interest coming from young folks emerging from school, coming from folks in tech, uh, coming into the climate ecosystem and where those will interact with folks with uh, a lot of experience. Um, it's going to create some cool, put some cool sparks and, and build some really amazing companies. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, really appreciate the time today. Uh, you too. Excited to, uh, like do. To publish this, uh, everybody, Mike ja Mike Jackson, Earthshot Ventures, uh, check them out. Um, many ranges and many uh, uh, sort of levels of funding from sort of early stage to the B. And um, looking forward to staying in touch, Mike. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Climb by VSC. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Special thanks to Credo for their help in producing and promoting this episode. To visit any part of today's conversation again, you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com. Our thanks to Josue Ramiro for posting these every week. Lastly, if you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out, and as far as I know, it's still carbon neutral. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you all next week on Climb by VSC.